You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's program is entitled Rivals. Hello my radio friends. Welcome to the program today where we will consider life and what's going on from a biblical point of view. To begin with today, I want to share with you the true story about the Dassler brothers and the shoe companies Adidas and Puma. In the small town of Herzogenaurich in Germany in the 1920s, Adolf, that's Adi, Dassler and Rudolf, Rudy, Dassler, founded the Dassler Brothers Sports Shoe Company, Gebruder Dassler Schuhfabrik. They began making shoes in the laundry of their parents' home. Adi, the youngest, was the creative one in charge of designing and constructing the shoes. Rudy took care of marketing and sales. To the small town of Herzogenaurich, they were an unstoppable force and the business grew rapidly. When the National Socialist German Workers' Party gained power in 1933, Adi and Rudy were faced with both a political and business dilemma. Whether to accept membership to the Nazi Party, to have the Dassler Shoe Company remain in business and protect the job security of 100 German workers, or refuse and face the wrath of Hitler. This decision evidently led the Dassler Shoe Company to be the only active athletic foot company to exist during the war. Still motivated by his love of sports and athleticism, Adi was inactive and disinterested in the party and its policies, and in 1936 made a controversial decision to provide his running shoes to the African-American athlete Jesse Owens. While Hitler meant to have the Olympic event exemplify the superiority of the Aryan race, Jesse Owens' record-breaking performances and victory as a black athlete on a worldwide stage and with sponsorship from a German-based company, challenged Hitler's power and racial allegations. Coupled with the fact that the 1936 Olympics was one of the first widely televised shows in the world, Owen's four gold medal victories in Dassler shoes introduced the company to the international stage. Unfortunately, in 1948, after 20 years of the partnership, the brothers split the company in two, creating Adidas and Puma. It's not well known why the brothers split the partnership. Some have claimed that the separation was due to the distaste the brothers' wives had for each other. Others have mentioned that their politics, visions about the future and business development plans were always at odds. Adi wished to prioritise shoe development, 
while Rudy was focused more on profitability. However, the most widely accepted incident cited by historians and researchers is an event that took place during the bombing of Herzegenarch. When Adi and his wife climbed into the house's bomb shelter that was already occupied by Rudy and his wife Adi, um, Rudy and his wife, Adi made a comment under his breath about the Allied Air Force, mumbling, The dirty bastards are at it again. Rudy interpreted his brother's comment to be about him and his family. By the end of the war, the arguments and disagreements escalated, and in the end the company assets were split. Rudy chose to build his new company, then named Ruda, across the Arach River, away from his brother. He would later rename his company to Puma, attempting to make his brand sound more appealing. The brothers' feud and shoe empires also impacted Herzogenaurich's economy. Since the Dassler Shoe Company was the main hub of employment in the vicinity, the brothers' split caused everyone within the town to choose to work for one company or the other. Local businesses began turning away customers from rival companies. Workers were disallowed to communicate, date, or marry anyone from the opposing side, and levels of interaction were determined by what type of shoes one chose to wear. The Dassler Brothers feud exists to this day, since they are buried at opposite sides of the Herzogenarich Cemetery. Rivalry seems to be a fact of life. Conflict is so commonplace nowadays, it hardly raises an eyebrow anymore. Rivalry often breeds bad relationships and even hate. Usually the base source of rivalry is selfishness. Sadly, Rivalry between the first brothers on earth ended in tragedy. The story is recorded in Genesis chapter 4. Adam and Eve had two sons. The first was named Cain, and the second was called Abel. The Bible doesn't record the names of any daughters born to Adam and Eve, and it is not known how many nor when they were born. There may have been daughters born before there were any boys. Now I'm going to read to you from Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through to 8. It says, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. 
So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. Two brothers. The older brother, Cain, jealous that his brother's gift had been accepted. He then, therefore, committed the first murder ever recorded in the whole of Earth's history. Some of you might be wondering, well, didn't Cain bring some of his best produce to make the offering to the Lord? Weren't his intentions good? Yes, he did. But although the biblical record is scant on details here, Cain must have known what was required because the Lord said to him about doing right and not doing right. If he did not know what was required, then he could not be held responsible for his actions. Have you ever given a gift the receiver did not want? Have you ever been given a gift that was not appropriate? Well, that was what Cain's mistake was like. You see, following the entrance of sin into the world, if mankind was to have any chance at all, God would have to step in to redeem man from the clutches of Satan. That was achieved through Jesus Christ, who took on our punishment on himself to be our substitute. Isaiah chapter 53 is a beautiful prophetic chapter about Jesus. And I'll read just a few verses. But why don't you read this chapter yourself? Number 53 from Isaiah. About Jesus it was written, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He was cut off from the land of the living. Abel's sacrifice of a lamb was symbolic of Jesus' sacrifice. In the Gospel of John, John the Baptist, and that's not the same John who was one of the twelve apostles, saw Jesus approaching him one day and announced, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He certainly did not say, Behold the watermelon or pumpkin of God. What could Cain have done otherwise? Well, he could have asked his brother for a lamb to sacrifice, 
but instead he chose to present to the Lord the product of his own labours, something he had worked to produce. But in here is another lesson. We cannot earn salvation because of our own works. You cannot do God lots of favours and build up a credit to offset all your debits. That just doesn't work. The issue is much greater than that. The Apostle Peter summed up the only way to be saved, and what he said is recorded in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, where he said salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, the salvation he's talking about was through Jesus, of course. Our salvation is due to God's works, not ours, although we must accept the way of salvation, and then we must honour God for his goodness to us by living a righteous life. So if you take on a vow of silence or give all that you have for the good of others or read the Bible non-stop over and over again or chant mantras for years on end, you'd only be wasting your time. Your own works will not and cannot save you. Instead, you must cast yourself at God's feet and pray that he will have mercy on you for all you have done wrong. You have to admit that you have sinned. You have to submit your will to God and ask for forgiveness. Then you need to accept that forgiveness. And following that, you need to live according to God's will in gratitude for what has been done for you. I suppose that many people and including Catholics, are not aware of the rivalry that has gone on in that church. To be the man, and at least in one case, woman, at the top, that is, the Pope. In order to become the new Pope, some contenders have conducted wars against their opposition. Others have murdered their opposition rivals, and there have been struggles, bribes and secret alliances, all in order to have the top job. One such individual was Pope Sergius III, who was pontiff between the years 904 to 911 AD. Of him it is written, and I quote from the book Unholy Popes, page 65, so corrupt and licentious were Sergius and his successors that their collective reigns were referred to as the pornocracy and are regarded as the most scandalous eras for the papacy. Sergius, however, stood out as one of the most vicious of them all. From the papal throne he ordered stabbings, poisonings and strangulations with neither compunction nor hesitation.
These popes, including many others, were nothing short of criminals, while all the time holding the highest office in what should be regarded as a holy organisation. Now we're going to stop here and have a little break, and we'll go on straight afterwards. Beams, our Father's mercy from His lighthouse evermore, but to us He gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. Today we're talking about rivals. Some of our good friends have been church attenders for many years. They've heard about sin and Jesus and how they can be saved. Like many other well-intentioned Protestant believers, they're aware of the basic beliefs about salvation. 
But if asked where sin came from, they haven't got a clue. And I find this very disappointing, because they have the same Bible as I have. They have a little worship book which they read from each day, and they say grace at mealtime, and they pray. They're really nice people, but it seems they're not very curious. There is so much more written in God's Word than the basics. The same situation existed in former times because the writer of the book of Hebrews, possibly the Apostle Paul, writing about his congregation had this to say. It's from Hebrews five twelve to 14. In fact, though you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. And I find it such a shame and a disappointment that so many sincere religious people know so little about what the Bible teaches. The analogy given in Hebrews likens such people to babies who should have grown up to eat solid food but are still on milk. So where did sin come from? If you ask those friends I referred to before, they would not know. The answer is sin originated in heaven. How that is possible is a mystery because heaven was a perfect place. A short statement by Jesus fills the picture in a bit. In Luke ten eighteen, is this verse, and Jesus was speaking. The verse reads, And he, Jesus, said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Added to Jesus' statement is what we read in Revelation twelve nine. The text says, and that great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. But you might be wondering, what happened that he was evicted from heaven? Put simply, Satan, once called Lucifer, had a bad case of eye disease. Listen what the, to what the Bible says in Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14. How you have you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground, you who has weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will descend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be, my, will be like the Most High. Satan, formerly called Lucifer, was jealous of God. He wanted to be like God or even above God. I expect he was jealous of God, the supreme commander of the universe, the creator, the one to whom the angels gave their praise and adoration. Ambitious Lucifer 
wanted all that for himself and embarked on a plan to win the angels over to him. Probably like what happens in an election campaign, Lucifer began by casting doubt in the minds of the angels. Possibly he made suggestions that the angels who adored God had no alternatives. In that, Lucifer probably suggested that God had an unchallenged monopoly, and because of that they had no choice about whom they would adore and serve. That done, he most likely presented himself as a candidate to be the ruler of the universe, and may have suggested that he would give the angels greater power and responsibilities. Obviously, the campaign was partially successful. As he took a third of the angels of heaven, sometimes referred to as stars, with him. Referring to Satan, in Revelation 12.4, the Bible says, And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and it cast them to the earth. And we poor human beings have been subjected to Satan's temptations and evil goings-on ever since he got a foothold on the earth. The angels who were cast out with Satan are here too. They're no longer called angels but evil spirits. They are the ones who appear as dead relatives come back. They are the ones who get inside a person so that person can no longer control himself or herself. They are part of the world of darkness and evil, and as is recorded in the Gospels, are the evil spirits who take over people's lives. I've spoken to people who've lived in places like Papua New Guinea and who've seen people who are devil-possessed. It is real and it's horrible. Satan's problem was that, as it's explained in Ezekiel 28:17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. It appears he became proud of himself and regarded himself higher than he was, thus causing the rebellion in heaven. Revelation 12, verses 7 to 9 explains what happened. And there was war in heaven, Michael, and that's another name for Jesus, and his angels fought against the dragon, that's Satan, and the dragon fought in his angels, and they prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven, and the great dragon was cast out. Rivals, Satan and Christ. That rivalry is known as the Great Controversy, and the battle continues today. It's the rivalry between good and evil, righteousness and sin, and the captains of hosts. But that rivalry will one day stop. God will end the rivalry. And it says in Revelation 20 verse 10, And the devil who deceived them, that's the people of the world, was thrown into the lake of fire of burning sulphur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And that will be their end. Rivalry between the commanders of good and evil affects you and me personally.
Christ wants to give us what is best. Satan doesn't care about people. He just wants to tear you away from Christ and eternal life. Whom will you belong to? Choose Christ. There is no better choice.